You're listening to the podcast of Always Forward, the church planting initiative of the Anglican Church in North America, helping plant gospel-centered, sacramental, missional churches. For more information and resources, please visit always-forward.com. Hey, church planners, this is Sean McCain. We have recently returned from the Provincial Assembly up in Wheaton, Illinois, for the Anglican Church in North America. We've got to meet so many of you. Dan and I were talking um, and just reflecting on how many people we got to meet who listen to our podcast, who have been blessed by the conversations we've been having. And it was such an encouragement for us to get to know you, to hear some of the stories of the things that you all are working on, God has called you to, and to see how we can continue to encourage and support and pray for you as you continue your work. Thank you so much for all who came up and said hello and introduced yourselves. It was really a pleasure. We also were involved in the Always Forward breakout sessions for the subconference at at the assembly, and uh, we got to meet so many of you there as well. It was overall an incredible time, and we hope that you were encouraged by um, our time together. What we have for you in the coming weeks, these episodes for our podcasts, are a lot of the conversations that we had, some of them planned, some of them not planned, um, with folks at the assembly. You're going to totally love them because they pick up the conversation kind of right where we left off dealing with planting sacramental, gospel-centered, missional churches um, in the kind of context that we're working in. So we hope that these are a blessing to you. We, we think that they will be, and we hope you enjoy them. We're here with Lee McMunn, who's a, who's a friend of mine from uh, the, the great kingdom of the, the UK, the United Kingdom, and uh, and and a church planter as well in England. So we're gonna we're sitting down here. A couple of exciting things are happening. One, we're sitting down with Lee, but we're also here live at the the assembly in uh, the the ACNA assembly here in Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, so uh, that's why you hear background noise because there's there's people everywhere here. And so we are we're doing a live recording here of the Always Forward podcast with with Lee McMunn. The thing we forgot though was to have one of those applause uh, oh. signs. We need an applause sign. Matt, can you get us an so, applause sign? Or, like, laugh. <laughs> <laughs> the live studio audience. There like we it. go. Yeah, yeah snap. Snap. I like it. I like it. Well, all right. So, <laughs> so Lee, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, man. I mean, uh, I've... I met Lee back in January when I went over to to England, and we were talking about Gafcon church planting kind of things. But this is actually Sean's first time being face to face here with uh, with Lee and meeting Lee. And so, um, introduce yourself to us a little bit. What, who are you? What, what are you? What are you doing? Why do we Why do we want to talk to you? Uh, well, okay, I don't know how far you. <laughs> that's, that's how we introduce all that's of our guests. So why do justify we your existence in in five minutes. <laughs> So I'm originally from Scotland. That's why I've got this kind of mongrelized accent. Mm. I'm originally from Scotland. I've been living in England for um, since 1996. Um, I grew up in a Christian family in in Scotland in a Baptist church. Um, I knew loads about the gospel. Wait, wait, wait. A Baptist church? Oh, sorry, in Scotland? I, am I in the wrong convention? <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you can say that. You can can say, say we're it? just clarifying. Are there yeah. a, are there a lot of Baptist churches in Scotland? Um, yeah, there are. There are. There are some. Yeah. There are some. Really? Yeah. Now, um, okay, so Scottish so, Scottish Baptists, like our Baptists here tend to not drink, but but Scottish Baptists have to. Because they're Scottish. Yeah. Right. Yeah, by, by definition. Okay, um, all right. When, was, you, when you were born in Scotland, sure. you were given a birth certificate and a pint glass. 
Amen. I like it. As I think we, we can hang out more with the Scottish Baptists. I like that. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm sorry. Your so, childhood yeah, in I, Scotland. Yeah. So I grew up. <laughs> this is going to be a long conversation. So I grew up in a Scottish Baptist church. I knew I knew the gospel about grace. I wasn't a Christian. Um, I was a um, someone who just wanted to live for myself. And um, I was an I was an arrogant I was an arrogant young man, intelligent, arrogant, self-centered. My only ambition in life was to do what my brother did, but do it better. Um, so mm. he was an investment banker in London. Um, I wanted to go to London to do the same degree as him at a better university to get a better degree and then to do the same job as him, but do it better. Um, so that was my ambition. I went to London. Um, I, got, I got an internship with a Swiss investment bank. I thought this was great. This was going to be my life. And then the posh term was I had an existential crisis. Um, after that experience, I didn't really know who I was, what I was doing, what the point of life was. And after a few months of just thinking, what am I doing? One night I went to church, the only church in London I'd heard of, which was called All Souls Langham Place. And I went in, this is where John Stott used to be the right, rector. Yeah, yeah. And I, I went in and this guy, John Stott was preaching. I'd never heard of him before. And I thought, I wonder if he'll be any good. <laughs> and I went upstairs <laughs> and I, I heard a sermon that changed my life. I heard a, a sermon from someone who preached the Bible with passion mm. and with humility. And God used that as a mirror in my soul to show me how self-centered and arrogant I was. But because I knew the gospel, I knew about Jesus and about grace and about the lordship of Christ, I knew what was wrong. And therefore, um, I had to repent of my sins and trust in Christ. So that was the turning point for me. I was a shy kid before that. God gave me a desire to teach the Bible, to evangelize. And then, and then gradually, um, people affirmed that I should be in full-time pastoral ministry. Eventually, um, I got ordained in the Church of England. And then I spent 12 years in pastoral ministry in a city east of York, and I've just left there two months ago to plant a church. So, do you want to? Do you know my family? Is that helpful? Do you want to? No. Um, married three children. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Really? Married three kids. Three kids. So my oldest is called Josiah. He's five. My middle one is called Karis. She's four. And then I've got another one called Zoe, and she's two. Now I know their I know their ages. I have no idea of the dates of birth, but I know that's, oh, you that's know, the I'm the same <laughs> way. I have five of my own and they're all under, people say, when were they born? Well, they're just seven and under. Yeah, that's fine. Just that's okay. Every other couple of years, you know, that's that all dads need to know. Right? Yeah. They know how many and what they're ages here, they are roughly. Healthy. Yeah. yeah <laughs> except that the other day, my, my, my son says, uh, I, uh, I changed your, uh, he said, I changed my password on my, my iPhone and, uh, you know, being his dad, I'm always supposed to have his, uh, his his password and he goes um it's my birthday and i was like uh. <laughs> i'm like i know the month and the day but i have to remember the year now too what's, what's going on i'm curious because we all know of john Stott. maybe a lot of us do some of us don't if you don't know who john Stott is go look him up you should know who he is especially if you're an anglican you really should yeah um how 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 much of an influence did he play in your your own christian identity or are we overplaying that right now just because that's like a pretty amazing conversion story uh, no, I don't, I don't think you're overplaying it. The, the fact is, it's not just one man as you hear him speak, sure, but it's yeah. and the influence of that one man on generations of people in England and then around mm. the world. So that's a man who was influential in writing books, on training leaders who then train other leaders. So his impact is huge. Um, and of course, one of, one of, the, of course his, his particular passion for the Bible, particular passion for evangelism. Um, but what John Stott also did is he, he had an ability to engage the mind, the heart, and the will. And that is, that is huge. So he wants to engage our Christian mind, 
not just so we understand the Bible better, but so we understand the world in which God has created. So therefore he engages with the contemporary culture around it. So he applies the Christian mind to what the Christian sees, uh, and that is, that is transformational to so the mind, but not at the exclusion of the heart. So therefore, the truths of the Bible about who God is and about the world he's created must impact the heart. Because he's he's, he understands the way we function as human beings, that, that we, don't just make, we don't just sit down and make a, a rational choice about things. We are driven by our desires. Uh, and therefore, we must have our desires changed by the Holy Spirit. So, so the mind and the heart are working together. But he also knows that what you want to be known for is not just a, a Christian who loves to hear the Bible taught, because he, he, he knows that the Lord Jesus says, look, the, you think about the parable, um, you know, the, 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 the people who build their life on the sand or the rock. Both of them hear the word of God, but the one who builds their, their life on the rock is the one who hears and obeys the word of God. And therefore, the, not just the heart and the mind, but the will, the will has to be changed by the spirit so that we actually do what God says. So I think that is, that is a huge legacy uh, that, that we hear in different places, some of those elements from different people, but actually to hear it connected together is huge. And we've got to, we must never lose that. So I think, so everything I've said so far is, is not unique to Anglicanism. And um, there are other things we must add to that. But as we add to those things, we must never lose the heart of what I've just said. So that could be right. called evangelicalism. But of course, Anglicanism never leaves evangelicalism. Uh, properly understood in those terms. There are other things as well. Mm -hmm. But as you, as you see the other things that are, that you might be convinced convictionally, as I was, are healthy, you never lose those other things that are the heart mm. of at evangelicalism. Its, at its best, at its best. John Stott, I think, represents that pretty well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay, so now, at, at this point, you, you are now church planting, though, right? Talk to us a little bit about church planting in, in England. Okay, so, I mean, all of our church planting work is all done here in the... in. North America, and so and John and I have planted a couple of churches around in this area. But, but talk to us a little bit about what's it like planting a church in the culture of England. But then also, what is church planting like in the Church of England? How is that all? Talk to us a little bit about the, the mess that is over there. <laughs> Just talk about the mess. Um, so I guess the first thing you've got to understand is the, the context of England. So you've got to you've got to you've got to see people properly. And um, England is is a mission field. So it depends how you define it. Is England a Christian country? No, uh, not in the sense of it is full of Christians. Um, does England have a Christian heritage? Yes. Uh, does it have certain Christian rules and morality that are at the heart of the state? Yes. Is it a Christian country? No. Now, increasingly what we're finding is that even at the level of our rules and our, our, our morality, that is changing and becoming more secular. The people of England on the whole, are not atheists. So although it's not a Christian country, neither is it an atheistic country. Mm. Uh, what you find, and, and that should not surprise us, should it? Because right. uh, the very Bible that we have, the revealed word of God says, the choice is not, are you, are you a worshiper or are you not a worshiper? The question is, what do you worship? Right. So that should not surprise us. Everybody's worshiping something. So, so in England, the, the, they're, they are worshiping. Um, now, some would still say, yeah, I believe in a God or I believe in some sort of higher power. A lot actually would still say, I believe in a God and I'm a Christian. They're not, but that's what they would identify <laughs> as. And what they would mean by that generally is, if they say that to you, is I believe in a God and I am a morally acceptable person by my own standards. 
That's generally what they think. Now, they would also probably then say, I am a Christian as well. Mm -hmm. So now you're trying to evangelize into that context. Okay. Would, are most people baptized when they're infants or no at this point? So the, the number of baptism is, is go, going down. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the Church of England was the, is the established church, and therefore there, is, uh, there has been a practice of, of, of pretty much baptizing anything that moves. Um, so, um, so, so that has brought massive confusion um, to the country because if your only encounter with a church is at three significant points in your life, um, baptism, and you don't remember that, right? funeral, you don't remember that if it's your own. Yeah, right. And uh, marriage, then there's maybe one encounter in a in a church that you're actually conscious of. Mm, wow. All right. Um, now, increasingly, most people in England are not getting married in in church. Okay, so their encounter in in a church is normally at somebody else's christening, stroke baptism, and somebody else's funeral. And if at those two encounters, the message that you hear is either this person is now a Christian or this person was a Christian because they believed in God and were a good person, the lie perpetuates to the next generation. So they just think, if I live like this, like this person, with my morality defined by myself, then I'm going to be okay. So that's what we're evangelizing into. That's, that's a large subset of the culture. Sure. You get others who would not claim they are Christian but would still say, I'm a decent sort of person or I'm into spirituality and whatever. So the headline for us is England is a mission state, so we need to plant churches all over the place, revitalize churches, but also plant new churches so that people actually connect with the real gospel of grace. That's interesting. How do you, what's fascinating is in, there's so many differences here that I'm hearing, but there's also so many similarities to some of the post-Christian contexts that we're seeing even in the United States particularly trying to disentangle the national identity or the the cultural identity or even the inherited tradition of someone's like their kind of familial identity from a personal conversion a conviction of faith what are the ways that um, maybe we can learn from what you guys are doing overseas what are some of the ways you go about evangelism and mission when when the first step seems to be at least some part early in the phase, you have to like disentangle people's identities, especially those who would claim Christians. How do you do? You begin by saying no, you're not, <laughs> or or are there are there more tactful, more nuanced ways of going about disentangling people's identities? Does that make sense? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Um, so I think you need um, you know clarity. I think you need clarity, courage, and creativity. Clarity, courage, creativity. I'll tell you what, what I mean by that. And it's so, convenient because there's three C's. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You're a good preacher, you, you I can tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he grew up in a Baptist church. Oh, he knows yeah, how yeah, to yeah, preach. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so let me tell you what they are. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, You've got to be clear, absolutely crystal clear about what the gospel is. Um, You've you got to be crystal clear about people's lostness. You got to be crystal clear about eternity. You got to be crystal clear about heaven and hell. You got to be crystal clear about the unique way to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to be crystal clear about the joy of the gospel. That actually, what is on offer is not simply forgiveness, which would be great if it was, but actually, what is on offer is fellowship with the living God. So, the great treasure that God offers is Himself. So, you got to be clear about that. So, that if you're clear about that in your head and your heart, then that that will motivate you to speak. Mm-hmm. Okay, because of course, what, what the Bible teaches us, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So all that stuff has got to be rooted clearly in your head and in your heart, and therefore it will lead to action, okay? So clarity will lead to compulsion. Oh, there's another C, clarity and compulsion. <laughs> Why not? Just throw Goodness it in. Goodness me, how sad this is, like, the whole brain is hardwired. Um, but you do need courage, okay? So as you look someone in the eye, I'll give you an example. I was yeah. meeting up with, a few months ago, a, a couple who came to um, our church and said, we've got, a, we've, got two, uh, we've got a young child, we want them baptized. Uh, and our, our instinct to say, hey, that's amazing. That's so good. Let us help you get to the stage where what you will say and promise uh, is going to make sense. All right? So absolutely, I, I, I'm a convictional uh, pedo-baptist, okay? I, I believe that... Um, that the children of believers should be baptized. That's what I, that's what I would do. I think that's a covenantal understanding, mm -hmm. and that's what we do. Um, so I don't try and distract them. I, I think, let's focus on this. Now, our way of preparation, now in, in England, it's like, in England, technically the canon law of the Church of England says you cannot refuse to baptize someone's child if they ask for it. Yeah, I get that. But there is a clause that says, unless for reasonable delay and preparation, great. That's what all is, you need. Yeah. What is reasonable <laughs> delay until they become Christians? Um, <laughs> Preparation. That's, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, that's, of course that's reasonable. Yeah. So therefore, we, we, have, we, we make it as easy as possible to prepare them for baptism. What we do is we give them a, a DVD resource, the parents to watch. Normally got seven sessions. So they watch an episode in their own time. And then me or someone else would go and speak to them for an hour, talk to them about Jesus. And then they would watch another one, we'd go back, da-da-da. So you can work out, you get about, say, seven, at least seven hours in their home talking about Jesus. Okay, that's good preparation. Mm -hmm. But there gets a point, and I remember this, I was having this conversation with this couple uh, just before Christmas, and I said to them, you think you're Christians, don't you? Wow. Hmm. And they said, yeah. And I said, no, you're not. <laughs> wow. Okay, and then I said, this is, let me tell you why. I said, do you think you're a Christian because... You, you hope there's a God and you believe you're morally decent, don't you? They said, yes. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> okay, now at this point, the, well, what you've got to do is you've got to smile at this point. Yeah, you, <laughs> you smile really well. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you've got to have you, a smile. You've like you got to smile. Well, that's because the news is getting worse, right? First, yeah, you're yeah. not a Christian and you're, you're not, not morally decent. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely fine. Right. Um, so you've got to smile at this point. Because right. <laughs> actually, genuinely, you love them. This is the whole thing about the heart. Yeah. Um, you love people, you love them enough to tell them the truth, but you're not beating them over the head, you actually want them to know the Savior. And so I'm loving them enough to smile and tell them this is, now at this point they can go two ways, either they can get up and throw me out of their house, they can say, actually we don't want this conversation to continue, or they can say, okay, if you loved it enough to tell us that, let, let's go. Now what I said at this point is, I actually told them this, I said, I've now told you something, the conversation go in two directions. Now they chose the let's continue to talk about it. Mm. And it was amazing, actually, because um, this was a guy who worked at a local primary school as a kind of janitor, caretaker, and he was going to the school telling all these other people, hey, I've met this vicar, and he, keeps, he tells me I'm a sinner and I'm not a good person. Hey, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Now, that, uh, so that's what I mean, clarity yeah. and courage. You've got to have the, the courage to look people in the eye and love them enough to tell them the bad news first. So culturally, I'm curious, the context that you're operating in um, is it that from all religious leaders or a great majority of religious leaders, people will hear words of comfort and that you're not a sinner? I'm wondering, is, is the opposite, does it tend to be true? Does the opposite tend to be true, what people hear from clergy in, in the UK? Well, th those, those are not words of comfort. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like if yeah, but they think they are. That's the problem, isn't it? So 
um, they will hear alternative messages. They will hear it. So the, the, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 1 says, um, if anyone, even an angel from heaven, preaches a gospel other than the gospel I preach to, let them be mm. eternally condemned, okay? Mm. Uh, anathema, because of an alternative gospel. Right. Um, so everybody's got a gospel, haven't they? Right. Uh, if the gospel is a good news announcement or an announcement that, we, that is so important that we, we change the direction of our life and live by it, everybody's got a gospel. The question is, which one do you got? Um, so there are false gospels, there are alternative messages uh, that are out there. Why are we surprised by this? But if anybody preaches them, the Apostle Paul says, let them be eternally condemned. Because why? If someone teaches you a message other than the gospel revealed in the Bible, it leads to actions that lead you away from Jesus Christ, right. uh, and therefore you never receive the comfort of Jesus Christ. Uh, so yeah, there are many clergy who are, either, who are saying things like, if that works for you, great. Right. Right. Or uh, another very popular alternative gospel now is a gospel without repentance. Hmm. So yeah. this gospel is, Hey, God loves you. Does he? Yeah, he does. Okay, great. And let's end the story there, okay? Right, let's go home. Let's have some coffee. Fine. Which, <laughs> which translated means you, you, you stay as you are, okay? That's it. Just live as you are, continue as you are. That's okay. Um, now, that is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the gospel of Christ is, hey, God loves you, doesn't he? And God has sent his son to die for you. And God wants to rescue you from the eternity that you deserve in hell. And not just to rescue you for heaven forever, but he loves you enough to transform your life by the power of the spirit now. Okay, now that's a word of comfort. So you've got other alternative gospels. You've got those who say, hey, it doesn't matter what path you follow. You've got this view of God. Hey, that's what you do. Those are not words of comfort, but you've got to have the clarity to see it. And then, the, oh, here's another one, the compassion. Uh, to be able to Ooh, speak another seat. another seat yeah just keep um, them coming it's that's what you need the compassion and the clarity to speak into that situation it seems like it seems like the missionary action evangelism whatever you want to call it requires that we identify call out and then work against those false gospels and in your context it seems like you're you have such a clarity about what are the gospels being preached and what's what's the actual uh, what's the, the biblical gospel that can be preached as a counter cultural message as something that's going to be heard maybe even slightly harshly because of the context that it's in yeah and in the united states we have plenty of our own false gospels i mean we could we could go through a whole list of c's yeah. about these false, false but that's not how you used it but you know what i'm saying yeah, yeah. um but it's, it seems like what you guys are doing is is um is actually quite helpful of a methodology for us to kind of reflect on and think about and resources like is yeah. understanding our cultural context well enough, understanding the yeah. false gospels floating around yeah. well enough to be proficient in proclaiming the gospel that, yeah. that is actually true uh, in that context. Uh, uh, yeah, and it, it is really important because um, what is communication? Communication is not just what you say, but how it's heard. Right, that's right. So in order, you gotta think that through. So you gotta understand the context. So as you deliver words, how will they be heard? And that is all determined by people's interpretive framework of life. Right. So it, it is important. So you're anticipating that some of the stuff we say will be said harshly or heard harshly. So that if you anticipate that, you've got to work out how you're going to communicate so that it is heard in the best, most effective way uh, possible. Absolutely fine. But you've also got to believe that the false gospels will ruin people. Mm. Okay, so they will ruin people for eternity and they will ruin people now. Because what is the biblical choice? Not between... Uh, somehow liberation and freedom or enslavement, uh, the choice is, hey, people are enslaved, the tyranny of enslavement to false gospels, or they can be truly liberated to enslavement to the most loving master in the world. 
I'm hearing a lot of Leslie Newbigin. Is that correct? Uh, I'm hearing a lot of Paul. <laughs> but I mean, but Leslie Newbigin, right? Also read Paul. Yeah. He, okay. Fine. <laughs> you pick. But I'm hearing both, and that's a compliment. Yeah. There's, well, there's all sorts of things that, that go in your head, aren't they? In terms of, um, you know, some of those names: Leslie Newbigin, Paul, uh, C.S. Lewis, Piper. Yeah. Um, Joe, uh, Tim Keller, all, all that sort of stuff. But it, it's what they do is at, at their best, they take you back to the sources. That's the, you know, this is the the 500th year of the, the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. So, what what is one of the phrases at the heart of the Reformation? I don't mean all the solas, but um, th- th- this this <laughs> all the S's. Yeah, but, <laughs> but but you think there was this all birthed out of that that sort of humanist movement. And that, that phrase of ad fontes, back to the right. sources. Um, so then you've got um, a movement that wants to go all the way back to see the original intention of the Bible. And we have, therefore, and this is the good thing about Anglicanism, isn't it? We're not, we're not abandoning our mind. We're not abandoning our history. But we're allowing the, the folk who've walked before us, the shoulders on whom we stand, to help us get back to the sources to understand the original message. So we may have different people along the way historically that help us get back to the Bible, but allow us to see things that then connect it to our generation. And I think people have, the names you've mentioned have helped us, for example, to understand sin. So sin, of course, is about rebellion, but it isn't just about that. Sin is about uh, being enslaved. Mm. Um, And then understanding that is a good news message for someone. You think about that enslavement, you might think that's really bad news. But if, if the Bible is true, of course, which it is, about the condition of the human heart, Everybody's enslaved to something. They are addicted to something. Now, that is a good news message. If you are an unbeliever and you are completely messed up in your life and you don't understand your situation, it is good news for someone to interpret it for you and then to say, hey, by the way, you can be liberated from that. You just got to believe it in your heart. That's That's what Bob Dylan said, right? Got to serve serve somebody. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. So can I, I want to shift gears a little bit. I'm curious about um, it's so it's so um, invigorating to hear your passion for the gospel and mission, um, and I think that Dan and I and the whole Always Forward community, we our heart beats with that. We can totally recognize that. I want I want to hear you talk about some of the unique challenges that you're facing, especially right now, kind of uh, with the Church of England, the situation we find ourselves in with the, the worldwide communion. This is really complex, and it's it's left a lot of people thinking, what's going on. Um, what is it? But it sounds like for you, what is front and center is not um, politics or kind of the, the latest crisis, but mission and evangelism. That's what strikes to me. The strikes me about your your sense and identity of ministry. Can you talk to us a little bit? How do you make sense of God's call, your ministry in this really complex situation in history right now? <laughs> can I ask like that? Yeah, you can. So, so I find myself in England at a time when. Um, later this week, um, there will be um, a unique event. So, in this in this very place, um, the the Gafcon movement. So, global Anglicanism united across the cultures, united in their their convictions of confessional Anglicanism, uh, will consecrate a missionary bishop for Europe. Now, that is massive. Okay, that is that is that is putting in the backyard of Canterbury um, alternative Episcopal oversight. Terrific, okay? That's what we need. Now, why? Not because we are being reactionary and because of politics, but because we see England properly. England is a country that needs to be re-evangelized. Okay, it is a missionary situation. Now, as a convictional confessional Anglican, 
Um, me and others want to see many Anglican churches planted in England. Why? Not because I'm an accidental Anglican, just because I happen to be in the Church of England and just I happen to have a building and happen to have this and that. But um, because I am convictionally an Anglican, I actually think some of the, some of the aspects of what makes an Anglican an Anglican and some of that is our uh, doctrinal confession in terms of the 39 articles, um, our belief in Episcopal leadership, uh, not essential uh, for the church, but for the, for the beneficial nature of the church. That's that whole thing of not the essay of the church, but the ben essay of the church. So it is, we actually think it is for the blessing of the local church to have proper Episcopal leadership. Um, so we, we want more of that. We actually think liturgical uh, framework is for the health of a local church. So we want to see many of these churches planted in England. I've got brothers and sisters who are remaining in the Church of England and who are doing all they can to pioneer, to establish, to turn around, to revitalize. And I, I, I think they're doing a great job. It is hard. Uh, the Church of England is a complicated um, animal, um, but, but they're there trying to do that. But as a confessional Anglican, if we think that we as Anglicans can play our part in the re-evangelization of England, simply in the Church of England alone, we're kidding ourselves. Interesting. Completely kidding ourselves. Um, so what we need, we talk about a twin-track Anglican approach to reaching England for Jesus. Simultaneously, we need people within the Church of England doing what they're doing. If they can continue to do that, and time will tell, um, if that is continues to be possible, right. time will tell. The jury's out on that. Okay? But simultaneously, what we need to do is have an alternative movement which may sit outside the structures of the Church of England, but which remains within the heart of global Anglicanism, okay? because that is our home. We need that right. simultaneously, not to be responding and reactive to what is going on politically, but who are proactively planting churches all, all over England that are convictionally, connectionally Anglican, because we believe that is healthy. So that's what we're about. So um, I, I've just planted a, a church that is an Anglican church that is part of the Anglican mission in England. So the Anglican Mission in England, or AMI, was, uh, was formed in 2013. It is it connected to GAFCON. Um, so we're outside the structures of the Church of England, but we're in the heart of global Anglicanism. We've just planted a church. Um, I've got an assistant minister with me. Uh, he's going to spend about four years with me to learn how to do some church planting. Then he's going to be deployed somewhere else in England to go and do the same thing. He'll have an assistant minister. He'll do the same thing, and then we'll try and multiply it. But I also work as uh, the mission director of the Anglican Mission in England. So our, our task is to raise up another generation of young leaders um, who will plant healthy Anglican churches outside the Church of England um, all over the country. And when you say you just planted this church, you mean you just planted this church. What did you say? You're seven weeks in? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, seven weeks in. I mean, so, yeah. Um, yeah. And you're here? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. How did you make that? Wow. <laughs> I've got my assistant. <laughs> yeah, so we moved as a family to... Um, it's in, yeah, in, maybe this is helpful. So in the context of England, uh, the, the model of church planting in England that is really common is to is is for one church that may be numerically larger to to try and start another congregation that is maybe a few miles or a few kilometers al just away from the main building, um, and that's that's okay. It might reach a new community. It might lead to new Christians. It might lead to some growth. That's okay. But normally, what it means is those who go to the new congregation generally don't have to move house. They don't have to move jobs. They don't really have to uproot their lives. What they have to do is they have to relocate where they meet on a Sunday. Now, that's, that's okay. I'm not, that's, a, that's one model of church planting. But if you're going to reach England, then you have to have a different model where people are prepared to move, both the, the pioneer ministers, but also other people who come with them. And I think what we struggle with in England is that in the DNA of many of our churches, we are risk averse. And therefore... 
um, we are not courageous enough, or indeed, maybe I'll put it like this in more biblical language. I don't think the great truths of eternity that we are going to be spending forever um, with God's people in heaven, and therefore the job now is to do all we can to, to sacrifice for the sake of that eternity to impact our daily decisions. Um, so the idea of uprooting your family uh, to, to move job, to move house, to sell up and go, one of our, and you can pray this for us in England, we've got to have that more as, more as the DNA, not just of our pioneers, but of our congregations, because that's what we need to do. We need to see this happen more and more. So we've, we've tried to do that. Um, about two months ago, my family moved um, to, to a new place, Scarborough, on the east coast of England to pioneer a new church. And God has provided people who have left jobs, sold up, and, and come with us. And we would love to see that happen all over the place. That sounds like a familiar story, Dan. Yeah. I mean, I think our, our, our listeners, and certainly Dan and I have, we share that story of picking up family and relocating on some pretty audacious hunch that God is calling us to go plant a church somewhere we've never <laughs> yeah, really great. even lived before. So here's a question for you guys then, okay? That's, yep. how do you, with that model, and it may be that there are other models you want to throw into this, but, but help us out. So how do you go from simply having a church planting movement that is defined by addition rather than multiplication? Ooh. Dan, I'll let you take the first <laughs> swing at that, and I'm just going to follow up with, yeah. I'll, I'll pick up of the obvious things that you missed. Well, it's funny. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, we, we joke around a lot about our alma maters and where we've graduated from, but I'm, but I'm pursuing my doctor of ministry right now at Asbury. Where, um, and, and one of the things that we're studying is that. We're studying church planting movements. And so we talk a lot about addition and multiplication, and we're reading all those books. And uh, I mean, I've read all of Addison books, Addison's books on movements. And uh, um, I, mean, I think what it ultimately comes down to is a church planting culture. I think, I think that it's always going to be addition when church planting is the exception rather than the norm. When church planting is the norm, and if a church is not starting another church, that's what's odd and strange. That's when we're going to move to a place of multiplication, where um, where where all of the systems are shaped towards multiplying. So budgets are shaped towards multiplying, and leadership development is shaped towards multiplying. And but right now we're having to kind of squeeze to get one out. You know, I mean, we have to squeeze. To get, <laughs> there, all right, we've got one. Now we're going to try to squeeze to get another one out. Um, and uh, and so uh, it, it's it's when. Uh, I think I think these churches that are being planted in this generation now that have a, a planting DNA um, that uh, as those churches continue to grow and have influence, I think it's going to be much more of a plausible scenario for us to have a multiplying movement um, because they're starting with a whole different DNA, and as they become more influential, they'll be able to shape our diocese more, and and so again. Church planning would become the norm rather than the exception, which it is right now. And I think that's where we will start to see multiplication rather than addition. Yeah, I agree with that. I think I think there's something to the whole uh, church planting culture as being normative. That's what we expect. But I also think, in addition to that, it, it's ultimately church planting in terms of multiplication and not addition. I don't think is is due to a lack of resources. I don't think it's due to a lack of ch current churches. Um, I don't even think it's due to a lack of culture completely. I think that's a huge part of it. But I, here's my hunch. I think it's actually due to a lack of um, an audacity to believe that God is calling people to do yeah. 
unbelievable things. And I, and I could see, like, the whole risk aversion thing, I can really sympathize with that. Um, we, we, I, I had a great job in Silicon Valley and left to plant a tree. It was crazy what I was, and I'm not holding myself up as some example um, at all, um, because I, I made a lot of mistakes. But it was really, really helpful for me to know that there were other people who had heard a call and made sense of it in really incredible situations and had done things like uprooted their family based on this call um, that they had discerned in community that had spiritual oversight. It was like, it was a responsible discernment. It wasn't just like a, a coin toss. But I, I, and maybe this is part of like the whole cultural normativity about it. When we can, when we can foster the kinds of Christians and leaders and really the whole ecosystem of leadership and community that can discern really audacious kinds of calls that when someone says, Hey, and I'm in Santa Cruz, I, I think I'm going to go, I think God's calling me to plant a church in Austin, Texas. It's not, you're nuts. No, that's ridiculous. It's maybe he is. Let's talk about this. I, I, so there's something cultural there, but yeah. you know what I'm saying? I think it comes down to the audacity to believe that God actually calls us to do incredible things yeah. that are going to be under-resourced, are, is going to have a ton of pushback, are not often going to work with the structures sometimes. The, can I say this? The organizational structures that be. Sometimes they require a little bit of like... A, Agility, um, sure. and, and and in our, our context as Anglicans, I think what's really key for us is the collaboration amongst uh, 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 the bishops and the diocese. This kind of collegiality, working together. Because if you got some guy like me in California wanting to plant a church in Texas, there's got to be that relational network in place to be able to do that well. Yeah, yeah and I, I don't know if, if, you, if this helps or not, but um, so one of one of my observations coming coming here at the ACNA assembly and I've only been here since yesterday so you know I, I don't think I've got the whole take on it yet <laughs> you're not an expert yet. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I mean, we can check in with you tomorrow to yeah, see yeah, if, if, yeah, if you've you done it tomorrow then yeah. I'd be, be completely covered um, but so, so coming from an English context um, and then trying to create an Anglican church planting movement outside the Church of England our, our models of Episcopal leadership um, it is not simply as we seek to develop an alternative structure that we want to have the same model of episcopacy but filled with different bishops. Right. What we actually want is episcopal leadership that is a different model. And what I mean by that, so uh, we, we have in the Church of England often that uh, for many bishops are best kept far away from you, <laughs> okay? Yeah, sure. um, because, of, because of who they are, and, but also because of what they do. Um, so they become managers at a distance. Um, many of them haven't had any church planting leadership. Right. They haven't done any of that sort of thing. So, but in a situation where you, you have Episcopal leadership where that person is modeling to others yes. that they are, they, are, they are planting. They're willing to take those risks. They, and have done it. Yes, right. and have done it. And have done it. So when they come and meet with their they're, they're, they're a clergy. They're not just giving you a hug and passing the tissues around. Mm. Um, they are <laughs> hopefully doing that as well um, after they've kind of probed and, and so on. But also, they're saying, hey, why are you not, why are you not planting? Who's your next guy who's going to go and plant? And you, you know as they, they look you in the eye and say that is that they're doing the same thing and have done that thing. So I just wondered in terms of as, with our Anglican polity and our Anglican convictions, 
what we need is not just thinking, hey, yeah, we've got bishops, great, but let's be thinking, what is our model of episcopacy and how is that connecting with our desire to plant more churches? Yeah, there's something, there's some sort of apostolic identity and function at play in what you're talking about of, again, recovering um, a view of the episcopacy that is on the forefront of mission, is the vanguard of mission and evangelism. Amazing. W- wouldn't it be amazing if we actually look back to the Bible? I know this is incredible, but, <laughs> but actually if, if the very confessional Anglicanism that we, we have, you read the 13 articles and again and again, where is the ultimate authority? It is back to the Bible. So the articles are always pointing you back to the Bible. So as we go back to the Bible, we have, our, we have models there of what our Episcopal leadership should be. Well, but so often what Hawkins just shows up. This is the thing about hosting an interview in a lobby space like this. Everybody just stops by and pats you on the shoulder and says, what's up? Like we're not in the middle of a conversation, Hawkins. Get out of here. So, but the, here's, here's the pushback that I'm thinking of is so many, so many things, when we come up with challenges of, you name it, in the church, mission, whatever, is uh, you'll often hear, well, if... if if the episcopacy was just a little different or if bishops would just do this or that but and certainly there's 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 room for some of that i'm sure but isn't there just isn't there also other things that non-bishops like clergy or laity how do they get involved in this movement of god in the audacity of believing that god actually calls us to risk things and to obey and cooperate with him on mission in the world how do we how do we spark not just certainly our leaders We've got to lead. We've got to demonstrate. We've got to show by example. I'm all, I'm all with you on that. But how do we also include the rest of clergy, the rest of the laity in, in this missionary movement? What, what are some ways that you can think of that either you have brainstormed or you've even seen in action? Uh, so I, I think the first thing I would say, I think, is the importance of modeling. Um, I think it's, I'd say it's massively important. So um, for me, I, I want those who have oversight of me to model to me uh, what it means to lead and therefore I, I as I hang out with them as I spend time with them and as I see as they take me um, under their wing and show me what it means to lead then that that shapes and reflects my character um, it affects my competence it affects everything I do uh, then then I can be doing that to other people but it's got to be intentional and I think that, that that's that's the difference not just we don't just need the right modeling at the different levels of leadership but we need an intentionality about it as well. Um, most of us are too busy with too many things. But, you know, but, and sometimes we pride ourselves on that, don't we? That, hey, I can do this, I can handle that, I can handle that. But the reality is we're not very good at saying no. So we've got to say no to the things that enable us to be intentional about the things that we should be doing and doing well. You're preaching now, brother. Am I? I am, I'm, <laughs> I'm always getting preaching. convicted over I always preach. I'm always preaching. Um, but that, so so then, true. Um, so then as I think, uh, and so I, as I say that to you, I, I say to myself, I think, what, how am I intentionally looking at, 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 the, at the congregation to intentionally model to people? And it, it's not just about hoping that they might see things that I do and our family does. So, for example, one of the things we do in our church, seven weeks old, so, you know, it's early days. But one of the things we, one of the values we wanted to put in place in the congregation was hospitality. So we don't just want people to attend it on a Sunday, get in a nice welcome. But we want people to be embedded into the life of the church, to get into the church family. We want people in our homes. We want people to eat with us. We want people to, right. to talk with us over, over food. Well, how's that going to happen? Well, of course, I've got to model that. Our family models that. Um, but I, I haven't just got to hope they catch it. Um, and I haven't just got to think, oh, they're not doing it. I've got to intentionally 
have the conversations with people whose whose hearts may be in it, but don't know how to do it. So let me help you do it. <laughs> I've got to be in, I've got to be intentional about that sort of thing. Always, all the time. We've got a little phrase, um, and the thing, the reality of what I've just said, intentionality in all those different ways, whether it's hospitality, whether it's um, evangelism. For example, evangelism. I I want people to to, to see me do evangelism. Um, in all the different contexts, not just giving an evangelistic talk. So I want to take my guys with me for coffee and I want them to hear me evangelize the people serving me coffee because then they catch it and then they can see that happening. The reality of doing that all the time is tiring, okay? Yeah. But that's okay. And I think this we've got this little phrase, I don't know what it's like over here for you. Um, there's a pushback against burnout. Rightly so, exhaustion burnout. Right. But the pushback is balance. I've got to have some sort of balanced right, life. Right. That's not biblical. Okay? So I don't, I don't want to, you know, this is cheesy, but I don't, I don't want to burn out. I don't want to rust out. Okay? Mm-hmm. But the biblical phrase is I've got to pour myself out for Jesus Christ. Now, that, if you pour yourself out, that sort of language is, hey, you get tired. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we ask our guys through the ordination process and through the church planting process for Amy is do you think it's okay to get tired in ministry right right okay yeah it is if someone comes up to you I hope so yeah absolutely (laughs) definitely if someone comes up to you and say hey you look a bit tired you say great I'm doing my job I know that's fine thanks very much for the compliment if someone says to you hey you are look exhausted and you're going to burn out and your kids hate you and your wife is very angry with you Mm. there are some alarm signals but what I mean is we've got to get the right mindset we pour ourselves out for Jesus. That process is a joyful thing. But you will get tired by being intentional about all these things. But that is what is like. And that's okay. In the light of eternity, that's what we do. Man, that's such a good perspective. And for, for church planners to be hearing that it's okay if you're tired, um, that's normal. Yeah. <laughs> right? just, just, it is just normal. You know. It is normal. If but, it, you, I mean, it can be unhealthy. It can go off the rails. Right? Um, rest is super important. There's good ways of like taking care of yourself and your family. And, and we talk about it always forward, wanting to plant healthy churches with healthy church planters, right? So there's like a, um, an idea of health that we're after here. But health doesn't mean um, not working, not pouring yourself out. Yeah, you, so you get, the, you get the biblical pouring yourself out. And I think um, there's a few things you've got to get clear as well. One, w- one clear thing is that you are a creature, not the creator. Mm. Therefore, you are finite. You've got limits. Yeah, you've got limits. But here, and so th- that's one stage of getting that. So you're not the savior, you're not the creator, therefore you have limits. So get rid of your savior complex. You've got to get rid of that. Okay. But people get that, that eventually. But there's another step which I think is harder for church planters. That God in his wisdom has not given everybody the same capacity. Mm. That's mm. the truth. Yeah. yeah. That is the truth. Okay. So... Yeah. Um, your your value as a church planter is not that you can do the same things as somebody else can do that you know. Right, like, because I could bench 350 and Dan can't even get, like, 180? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's, that's what you mean, That's right? the definite, yes. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's funny. Yeah. That's the exact example I was just thinking as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't even want to see me sit, sit on a bench. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, they do that different in England, don't they? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we, we, we find sitting on a bench is really easy. Yeah. <laughs> we're not talking about waiting for a bus. <laughs> we're talking about lifting some heavy weight. But that, I think that's hard. That is hard, isn't it? To, yeah. Because so often, we, we, and this is what often leads to exha- exhaustion and discouragement. We think, hey, I want to be like that guy or, or, the, or, or that 
that lady over there doing what she's doing. Hey, God has given you the capacities he's given you. So the challenge is how do you, how do you pour yourself out for Jesus within the capacities that God has given you and be okay with that? Right. And that's liberating. It really but, is. I mean, well, I mean, it's the, uh, it's, it's, it's being a good steward of the, the amount of talents that the Lord has given to you, right? Or the or the measure of faith that the Lord has given to you as well. And, and I mean, they're both phrases. Let's just be let's just be real for a second. You need homies who can call you on the phone and say, Sean. Wait, do you do you need me to translate that? Oh, homies. Do, do you have homies? Yeah. You yeah. Homies. Can it, mates. 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 There we go. Mates. You need mates. Chums. Chums. <laughs> Pals. Pals. <laughs> who Hold can on. call you on the phone and say, Sean, you've got to stop. You've got to say no. You can't do that. Why yeah. are you doing that? I've yeah. got I got one of those guys. Yeah, that that's, happened that's, not even like two weeks ago. But it was a little longer than that. Ago. Yeah, before you went to Hawaii. Like I told him, I said you got to say no to things. And next he's like, I'm going to Hawaii for two weeks. And I went, wow, well, that's awesome. That's yeah. not what I told you if, to do. If only everyone on the on the podcast could see my tan, though, they'd appreciate it. It is pretty impressive. It's pretty. <laughs> all right, so so let me ask you this before before we, we we wrap up here of. Um, all right, so you you sat in an, on a on a good bit of the always forward discussions this afternoon here at the assembly, but not not the not the bad bit, and the, the the good bit, <laughs> the, the good bit. Yeah, that's right. After I did my teaching, then you came in um, for the good part <laughs> after in the afternoon. Um, that uh, and so, w- what are some things just in the discussion about church planting and Anglican church planting? What what are just some of the cultural differences? I mean, what um, uh, how is the conversation different in what you saw? And experience today from the way things usually go back in England. I mean, were there were there differences, or were you surprised at how similar they were? Or what were your, what's your takeaway? Uh, well, I guess two things. Uh, one is, I guess, one is a similarity, and then one is a big difference. So, um, the, the first one is a similarity, but it's I think quite helpful to say it out loud. One of the questions that gets rarely asked in England about church planting is how much of the growth of the new church is conversion growth and how much is transfer growth. So I, I'm not against all transfer growth at all. And um, you know, one of the things that I'm not against um, what I would call sheep rescuing. So if, if someone is a Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and is in a church where, which means they are malnourished and they're being hurt because of the practice of the church because they've moved away from the gospel of Christ um, and they come to a church that is healthy, Hey, praise the Lord. That's not that's not cold sheep stealing. Right, right. That's rescuing them. That's right. great. We want more of that. Um, so that's fine. But how how much of our growth in new churches is actually people who were once in the kingdom of darkness and are now in the kingdom of light? Mm-hmm. Okay, conversion growth. Now, in England, we, we rarely ask that question to church planters because church planters are often so nervous and they base so much of their identity on growth that if they get growth... People are saying, hey, praise the Lord, hallelujah, you've got growth. Right. Let's not pop the bubble by asking, is it conversion growth <laughs> or transfer growth? Let's, let's just celebrate yeah. growth. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, but I think we've got to ask the question, um, because if we're trying to reach... Um, the, the danger, of course, by using language like mission, is that it gets disconnected from evangelism. So we want to be communities on mission. And discipleship, I would say, as well. Well, well yeah. properly, yeah, yeah, proper discipleship is going to include... Right evangelism and then the growth of course we've got to do that um, but the danger is that we, we we actually forget we're not just trying to make new contacts we're not just trying to do good to the community we're not just trying to transform people's lives we're trying to introduce them to christ who will transform their life and their eternity so we've we've got to so i think a similarity is when i asked that question today 
here is I think you've got some of the same issues as us in terms of oh, sure. how many people getting converted genuinely um, and how many people are just transferring. So we've got to have that. Yeah. We don't just want to realign people. We want to win new people for Christ. Right. So that's, that's a similarity. A difference which is fascinating is, a, um, is, is about, I think this is right, and you can tell me if it's right or not. From what we said today, I think every new Anglican church in the ACNA that is either being planned, yeah, in the process of being planted, is desiring to have a weekly sacramental service. Mm. Now, I, I, I think that is fascinating. Why do you say that? Um, partly because I don't think anybody else thinks it is fascinating because, um, <laughs> um, but, but this is maybe as a cultural outsider because, so I, I hear, uh, and, and it encourages me that there's an increasing number of people, particularly from a younger generation, who have abandoned a very shallow evangelicalism that did not engage the mind and did not have structure and have abandoned that and actually seeking um, some of what Anglicanism at its best offers. So some of liturgical structure, um, some of the depths um, of, of thoughtfulness, um, engagement with the senses, um, all, all of that. We've got the written word of God. We've got a structure that encourages to prayerfully meditate on that. We've got the visible word of God as well. So we're, we're we're embracing what God has given us for the health of our souls, right? I get, I get that. But, but I'm not convinced that that needs to be translated. If you're going to have um, a confession or Anglicanism that is liturgical, whether that always has to translate into a sacramental service every week. And it seems to me, and I might be wrong, it seems to me that either that is the, the definition of a healthy Anglican church plant, that that is actually what people should aim for. And the reason I say that is because if everybody's doing it, it may be the unwritten standard that everybody's trying to follow. And my question would be to you guys and to the planters who are listening, why are you doing that? Now, this is not being me confrontational, but why are you doing it? Is it because you have thought it through and thought to yourself, yes, confessional Anglicans, because of our view of the sacraments, uh, and I, I've said to, to Dan, I think if you are an Anglican by conviction, then you must have a high view of the sacraments. Absolutely. Who wouldn't? So we're we're not by conviction. Uh, we're, we're not followers of Zwingli. We're not just mere memorialists in terms of our view of communion. Um, so we're reformed. So we we believe that what God will be acting. Um, it is a visible word to us, and therefore that that the encounter with the Lord through the visible word is real. We believe that happens. Absolutely. That, that's what you are as an Anglican. Tick the box. But what does that then look like in terms of practice? Does that necessarily then say? that every week we will have the sacrament, or actually they will be part of our regular practice. Not something we're embarrassed about, not something that we say, oh no, it's the week of communion. But being liturgical, there are other liturgical forms as well um, that are part of Anglicanism. So I guess that's my question. Are the, are the people planting churches thinking this through, or is it just because everybody else is doing it right. that they're following as well? Because yeah. that would be unhealthy. Well, I mean, I'd say, you know, the first answer is we are Americans. And so if a little is good, then more is definitely going to be not? better. You like, know? why not? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, my answer to that would be uh, I, I believe in the, the sacrament of the Eucharist as a means of grace. And so, therefore, yes, we're going to do it every week. I mean, if, if, if it's a means, if it's something that imparts grace... Um, then yes, we're going to participate that in that every 
every single week and, and even other times during the week when we get together. Um, I, well, I, I guess a part of my curiosity is why wouldn't you? Uh, well, I mean, why? I don't know. I, I guess where I'm, where you're fascinated by this, and kind of like I, I guess I'm kind of going, why? Well, why not? What What would be the benefit of not doing it? Um, if doing it is odd, each if doing it each week is odd, what's the benefit of not doing it each week? Are you avoid? Are you are you wanting? I'm hearing a little bit of wanting to avoid doing it be, for the sake of it. That's how we do it, and so this that's just kind of the standard of a healthy parish is this weekly Eucharist. That's not a good enough rationale is what you're saying. Uh, well, um, I don't think it's a good enough rationale just to say, hey, this is just what happens. Right. Uh, you know, I think Dan's rationale is there's a thought, the thoughtfulness about that, isn't there? So they're saying, my understanding theologically of the sacraments is as it's a visible word, as a means of grace, uh, given by, by the Lord Jesus Christ because of, he knows what, as he made us, he knows what we are like, he knows what we need, he has provided for us in all the different forms that we need in order to grow. Um, therefore, why not? Because that is, that is a means of grace. Therefore, you, 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 you operate in that way. It would leave a question for me to think through what then becomes the central focus of our ministry. Um, are we saying actually the central focus of our ministry is an encounter with God through his word, and that happens through the written and preached word and through the visible word. So actually what you remain central is mm -hmm. the word of God, and then its expressions, because therefore the word of God um, is, is the vehicle of communicating with the Lord, mm -hmm. and that's his presence either through the, the written, preached, or visible word of God, okay? That would keep the word of God at the central. The danger is, I think, that we move away from the centrality of the word of God, and then how we encounter God through his word, preached, visible, to just the visible word of God as the centrality of what we do. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And there's yeah. a, that's mm -hmm. subtle, but I think it's an important distinction. We've got to be careful that, that, that we don't do that. Um, but, but would not doing it every week keep that from happening? No, no, no. So I haven't got around to that. So in terms oh, of, yeah, oh, no, no. So I'm just, done. I'm, 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 done. I'm not finished. That's not fair. In. Take it easy. Yeah, man. go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, back <laughs> and down. I'm rolling it back in. No, no, no. So that, that, is, that is one way of doing it. So others would then say, well, the question then becomes, how do you show the importance of, of, of an encounter with the word of God? So some would say um, there, there, are, there are different liturgical services that enable us to have that, have have different encounters with different aspects of the Word of God. So some would say, so uh, morning prayer uh, would allow uh, the people of God to, to encounter a longer experience of the preached Word of God, and then a longer encounter with each other um, as they talk about the Word of God. And then the, the visible Word of God, the sacraments, would be less frequent, but therefore they would look forward and anticipate that encounter with the Lord uh, because they were less frequent. There's an argument that could be made for that. You, you may disagree with it, but but you see, there's a there's a thought behind it. Right. Um, now we haven't even got talking about um, how thoughtfulness as we as we as we seek to evangelize as well, and who will be who will be with us in our meetings. Um, you're talking to someone who believes that the gathering of God's people is primarily for God's people. Right, okay, sure. that, you, you'll hear me say that. Um, but um, as I go back to my Bible, I see that there will be unbelievers who gather with God's people as well. And I know how the arguments go because you might say, "Hey, well, let's have it every week," because People are going to see. Um, they're going to see the people of God, hear the word of God, the preach word of God. They're going to be uh, seeing people uh, engage with the visible sacrament as well. I, I, I get it. But what I want people to do is to think of those other issues that are impacting. And they may come to the same conclusion. Okay, they may still say, hey, we're going to plan a church that has a sacrament every week, but be thinking of all the different connected issues, theologically, missionally, 
you want you want to be thoughtful about these things as well. It would be interesting for me to ask you. Um, I think let's flip the rationale over and apply it to the scriptures. Why why do that every week? Why not leave it for special occasions to make it more important? That would be crazy to suggest. Well, let's not read scripture every week or preach. Um, and in this, and I think I don't know. I mean, for me, I'm thinking about this. I'm like. Why do we have to choose between either or? And why is why, if it is truly a means of grace, if if God does keep His promises and He is with us, and it just comes down to a matter of catechesis, ultimately, like teaching people, like helping people acquire the eyes of faith to discern the real presence of Christ wherever He's declared Himself to be, as Pusey would say, then let's do that. Let's do that. And you know, I and I I'm, I'm familiar with some of the. Um, some of what you're suggesting, I, 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 there's prob- I, I'm sure there's a lot to that, um, and I don't mean to, to be dismissive, but even like the um, kind of the, uh, well, let's leave something that should be important for less, less frequent use so that it stays uh, important or significant or special. Would it's, every time I hear that, I think, if I told my wife once a month that I loved her, it would not be more special. <laughs> no, no, that I mean, but that's the word. You know what that's, I'm saying, that's though? the word spoken. I mean, you've got to get it then, like into. If I kissed my wife, well, only hold on once now. This is a well, well, no, this hey, is a G-rated podcast, bro. I was just going to say kissing. That's oh, all I was. Gonna that's say. all I was going to say. Too. Okay, good. All right, that we can stay into G-rating. <laughs> in that. All right, so so if I said that I'm only going to do that on special occasions in order to make it more meaningful, uh, 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 honey, only on our anniversary then, once a year. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, there's something to that, right? Right. There's something to that, I think. Well, and and you know what's interesting about, but again, I think coming back to context, I think um, even we've talked about this in wearing the collar. In some contexts, wearing the collar can be, if there's the right rationale behind it, that is that is not um, traditionalism for traditionalism's sake, but is actually a a gospel-centric, like people-loving um, uh, rationale behind wearing a collar. Then, then so be it. I mean, my bishop, he tells us all the time, if you look at me in the eye and, and can tell me this is for the sake of the gospel, this is to reach people, man, go for it. You know. Um, so I hear, I'm wondering if, if some of this is like coming from different contexts where, where sacraments and the liturgy and the reading of scripture is, is, is so normal, so normative in the tradition that it, it can lose some of its charge, some of its freshness. For us in the, in the U.S., I think we're often coming from maybe a little bit different context where the introdu- it's an introduction to the liturgy. We have liturgy tours at our church. Um, we, we'll have communion every week and people walk in and go, wow, communion every week. What's that about? And so for all of, for all of those things for us have been a vehicle of announcing the gospel. Yeah, no, no, I get that. And see- but I hear you saying, but the rationale has to be there. It can't just be, um, if, if it is just, well, that's how we've done it, then, then you're, you're, you're forfeiting some of the, the 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 beautiful gospel charge that is is readily accessible and, and ready to be given to people. Michael Ramsey would talk about this all the time. He'd say, you know, the liturgy is only as good as its ability to proclaim the gospel, and the sacraments, the preaching. It's it, it's only as good as its ability for people to come in contact with the living God. When it becomes just kind of this handoff from one tradition to another, one generation to another. Um, there's a place for that, actually. There's a place for that because we do a lot of things that we don't totally understand, and that's one of the gifts of being Anglican: is you get a lot of things in the treasure chest that you don't know how they work, um, and it's okay. Yeah, 
Well, yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's what I'm kind of sitting here stewing over a little bit is that, that you're you're kind of making a claim though that the efficacy of the scriptures. No, is, no, is, no, is, no, no, no. You no. are. You I'm are. not. I'm not saying y- that. Yeah. Okay, maybe in what I'm taking that I'm. T- let me back up. Okay. Michael Ramsey was applying that to the liturgy, and I think he's right. I wouldn't apply that to the sacraments in the scriptures. I wasn't talking about Michael Ramsey. I was saying what you were saying, Sean McCain. I was quoting Michael Ramsey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that that if if we believe it, that that the that taking part in the Eucharist is a means of grace. That's not necessarily actualized by our ability to have a good rationale of why we do it yes. or not. It's just it's yes. efficacious in itself. And so so that's I'm just why, saying, that's why I believe in 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 pedo communion as well. I mean, we Oh, I'm with you. you know, I mean, I'm just saying there are bad liturgies. Oh yeah, that's true. And how do we know a good liturgy? Well, it proclaims the gospel in and of itself, is what I'm trying to say. And so, and what I I I can kind of relate to some of what you're saying here is, the way we inhabit our Anglican identity in these treasures, it actually matters. That the heart is in it, that that our our focus is in Jesus, in proclaiming the gospel, and that we actually have eyes to see people in their real lives, in their hurting and broken lives, and that there's ministry that, that can be had here, and not just this kind of thin, stuffy, traditionalism, right? There, there needs to be some sort of really beautiful rationale behind yeah, it. Yeah, but that makes it even more powerful. So, so it's good for us. So, so I come, I come into, as an outsider into the context, and I see what you guys are doing, and it makes me ask questions of you, but also it makes me ask questions of what we're doing um, because it makes me reflect back to the culture I come from and the, the rationale we've got or not for doing the things that we are doing. But I think increasingly this may be the similarity between our two contexts. The, the folk increasingly that we're reaching as healthy Anglican churches are often not people who have come traditionally from those kind of churches. Yeah, that is similar. So therefore, yeah. understanding why we choose to do what we're doing becomes even more important because we're not apologizing for what we're doing, mm-hmm. but we're not just assuming that people know what we're doing. Often we're, we're helping them understand the reasons for what we're doing. So in my context, the, the majority of folk in our church, like seven weeks old, have not come from an Anglican background at all. So little things like when we read the Word of God, okay, most of them have never seen any liturgy attached to that at all. So they never see this is the Word of the Lord, thanks be to God. So what do you do? Well, we don't just say it. So the first week we have the Bible read, before we have it read, I say, hey, do you see those little lines? We're going to say, this is the Word of the Lord. Why are we going to say that? Because that's what it is, okay? That's what it is. Why are we going to respond, thanks be to God? Because your Father has just spoken to you. Wow, that's amazing. So from your heart, you want to say, thanks be to God. Okay, we'll do it in week two. Then they get it. But now they understand that the reason we say this is because it is a heartfelt response, but the liturgy enables us to put words to a heartfelt response. So why do we do it? I don't have to put that in in our service, but I choose to because I think it's good for people. That can be life-changing. I've seen it. I mean, you see the light bulbs come on for people, liturgical catechesis. It can open the door for people in such amazing ways. I totally agree. I, I wonder too, uh, and I'm having trouble articulating this in my in my head. Uh, of uh, so, here's one of the things that struck me when when I visited you in January, uh, and uh, was how old everything is. Right? I mean, everything everything just feels so so new here um, uh, in in comparison. And 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 I, what I mean by that is. You have buildings older than our entire country, right? By I mean, by hundreds of years. Um, um, but 
Uh, oh, all right, let, sure, let me, maybe I can articulate this through a story. So, went to Westminster Here Abbey. Here we go. Okay. Went to, <laughs> West, went to Westminster Abbey <laughs> and, uh, and was, was walking around just in awe of the place, right? Uh, because we don't really have anything like that here, right? And uh, we walk through our metal buildings or whatever else here. But, um, and so um, I, knew that, I knew that Thomas Cramner wasn't buried at Westminster Abbey, but I didn't know where he was buried. Um, and so uh, our little tour guy that was taking us around, I asked him, I said, can you, I said, I know he's not here, but can you tell me where Thomas Cramner is buried? And his, his response was, who? Right? Okay. <laughs> I can so, show you where Darwin is. Right, right. I mean, so he's the tour guide at Westminster Abbey, right? Like, and so there's just a sense of... Um, was it because the, you didn't say it with an, an English accent, though? That could have been it. Maybe. But well, I'm not good at accents, so... so uh, Carry on with the okay. story. Anyway. This is a gripping story. I, I mean, <laughs> so... I, how would, Sean, how would you have said it? I'm not going to even... <laughs> yeah, yeah, you do how, how would you have said it, Lee? Uh, I, I, have a, I have a mongrelized Scottish accent, <laughs> so I have no idea what you... I, so, <laughs> but, but, it, but there was just this sense of me that, that it almost... In me that it just didn't compute well, right? I mean, because here there's... there's n- it's not like we necessarily had a robust Anglicanism here that we lost. Um, it's, it's never been the same kind of context as Anglicanism in England, right? Um, but it's... But they're just as barren, and, and I just wonder if there's any kind of impact. Although no one, no one except maybe at this assembly, but but no one else around here uh, in America. If you talk about Thomas Cramner, one out of a thousand people are going to know who he is um, here. Uh, but that's not odd because our heritage is sort of imported from from England. But but for that to happen in England felt to me like, oh, no, no, this is so close over here. You've lost something. I just wonder if, because I think both of our cultures are very similar in that, that they're at, a, at, a, at an equal sense of sort of ignorance and, and being pagan. Um, uh, but we come at it from two different perspectives. Am I making sense in that? Yeah, yeah I think so. Help me wrap that There's up. just kind of like a recently lost memory, corporate memory that could Maybe that, yeah, that's a good way be to say so it. enriching for an Anglican faith. I mean, do, do you feel like that has an impact on the on the folks that you're reaching out to? And even if they don't have a, a context, I mean, it, is is the fact that it's more recent and much more visibly present around um, uh, that does that have any bearing on how you interact with them or their or, or their response to you or as uh, as a uh, planting an Anglican church? Yeah, for, well, for us in our, in our context, so one of the importance of planting an, an Amy church. Of course, we want to be at the heart of the, the global Anglican communion, which, which we are. So that, that's helpful for people to see in terms of our, our breadth across the current generations. That's healthy. So, so we actually see the gospel unite different cultures, classes, colors um, around the world, all united together. That's really healthy. But confessional Anglicanism doesn't just go horizontally across the current generations because Anglicanism is a Reformed Catholic faith, isn't it? Right. So it takes us down vertically across history. Now, that's quite helpful, isn't it? And Because then what we're saying is we don't actually just go back to the 16th century to Thomas Cranmer. So Reformed Catholics, so we actually go all the way back. Right. Um, so, sure. so the stuff that we share way, way, way back, um, all the way through the ages. Now, that's, I think, really helpful because one of the features of our current generation in, in England, one of the things they are so obsessed about is ancestry and genealogies and so on. And why? Well, there is, there, there is a lack of rootedness in their lives. No, oh, absolutely. Just generally, yeah. in culture. They don't, yeah. They're not rooted anywhere. Yeah. 
but they're made. They're actually created. This is our advantage, isn't it? The, the, the Bible tells us how people were made. Whether they believe it or not is irrelevant. That's how they're made. Right. So they can't, they can't get away from the fact of their createdness. But they're actually being made for a God who spans eternity. So it should be no surprise to us that, the, that there are people who need to feel rooted. Of course they do. Uh, and therefore, one of the advantages we have is not just a, a faith that spans the current, the current generation, which is a beautiful thing, and we must big that up, but we've got a faith that goes through vertically through history all the way through, and that is good for people because their rootedness goes all the way back. Good for us as well because, of course, we're often blind to our, um, you know, our, our current faults. History takes us down. What we've got to hope, what we've got to work for when we say our Anglican heritage is that actually we, we, we properly go through Anglican history and don't just stop at a particular point right. and say that's what we've got. Right. Because that's a danger zone. Right. Yeah. Well, man, I can sit here and talk with you all night. We've got to kind of uh, wrap wrap things up um, uh, because we're all tired. It's 9 o'clock at night here. I'm ready so, to go. So what time is that? That's like 3 in the morning for you or yeah, something? Yeah, I think so. I think Yeah, I <laughs> yeah right. Um, but, uh, but there's good coffee but, here, so I feel quite yeah. nice. But, you know, I'm really encouraged hearing from you and getting to know you, and I, I really hope that um, some of the mutual, the shared affections that we have for Anglicanism and its ability to be on mission in the world, yeah. um, th that it can kind of connect us in the communion. And certainly if you think of, of Lee and uh, the Amy, uh, pray for them and their work mm -hmm. as uh, we'll keep you in our hearts and our minds and yeah. prayers. And, uh, but I hope, man, you know what would be beautiful? I really genuinely hope this is so I'm going to put this on the recording. How, how beautiful would it be to have a communion that cooperates and participates with one another uh, for the mission of God throughout oh. the world, praying for each other? I hope for that, yeah. and I love the idea of that. So just sitting here and having this conversation, I feel like works toward that end a little bit. Yeah, it does. and I guess i say that one of the things that we want to work through um, as, as Anglican brothers and sisters around the, the global communion is exactly that. How can we, how can we help each other yep. plant multiple churches around the communion? Yep. And maybe the last thing I would say, uh, there are going to be many church planters listening to this, I don't know if Dan and Sean want me to say this or not, but hey, if you guys don't want to stay in the in the U.S. and want to come to England yeah. <laughs> and plant churches with, with us, we'd love to talk to yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, so come 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 hey, see me. We're, and we're, come and come and get in touch. Anglicanmissioninengland.org. That's where you want to go. Yeah. Well, listen, we're friends of church planting everywhere, That's and right. so if there yeah. are those who who are listening to this who do feel that call, we want to send them to you. Um, we'll yeah. we'll uh, Sean will buy their ticket. Um, and so you can, uh, I want can this I to happen. So, so I put that in the, in the recording <laughs> is that Sean will buy the ticket. Um, oh, uh, yeah, which, you know, the good news is, and, and we'll wrap He's just up checking his wallet. <laughs> I know. Uh. <laughs> You're, uh, uh, I mean, that, that hope, that why I was in England and that Lee and I got a chance to meet was, uh, was for a church planting gathering to start to talk about how could we have a, a GAFCON global church planting network mm. that could do just that? How do we work together? How do we encourage one another, learn from one another, share in this together? So we're, we're on That's it. That's so exciting. We're on it, Sean. Hey, if there's anything that we can do to encourage or support you, would you reach out to us? Yeah. And, and likewise, we would, we would love to learn from you guys as well. So yeah. please stay well, connected with us. Uh, yeah, definitely. Because you, you look, New Testament partnership, three things often happen. Do they start with C? No, no, oh, I don't think they do. It starts with P. P. Oh, pray, yeah, it does pray. work in English, doesn't it? Pray, pray, people. People. <laughs> you can do it, come on. I can. Oh, I know how to do it in England. Um, so in England, it's pounds, it's money. Um, hey, that'll work. It does work. But, mm. but, that's a bit, but actually, yeah. people movement mm. is, is huge. And we want, we'd love you to pray for us. Mm. Um, the, even this, me being across in, this, in the United States, is brilliant for us as we learn from people. Yeah. Um, but, but let's be working towards that real partnership, not just pious 
words. Certainly. Yeah. But real partnership yeah. across the global communion. Yeah. Well, listen, may the Lord bless you in uh, in your local church planting work and in uh, in being a, a prophet and evangelist in, within England as well. And uh, uh, I'm excited to be partners in the gospel in this, and we'll, uh, we'll see how the Lord continues to open doors for us to be able to work together. So uh, church planting world, that is... Um, uh, Lee McNunn, and I uh, pray that uh, you would uh, um, keep him in your prayers and have learned a great deal from, uh, from him as we have today as well. So bless you, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Always Forward podcast. Visit us at www.always-forward.com for more resources, to submit your questions, or to interact with us. See you next time.